We uh, left off somewhere around the beginning of October, I think it was, and um, we left it at a moment in which Jesus had issued a very strong demand, a strong charge to what it means to be a disciple of his, and uh, there was a pause for a number of days before this extraordinary event called pl- took place, which is called the Transfiguration, and it really marks a kind of threshold moment, a pivotal moment in the, in the gospel. Um, there had been this kind of crescendo of um, successive unveilings of who Jesus is and his miracles and his teaching, uh, all the way up to this, this moment of, of real crystal clarity. And then after this, there's a kind of the road towards Jerusalem, I suppose, as things move towards the cross and towards um, the events that would take place there. And so I think this, at the center of the gospel, really marks a, a, a particular line in the events of what are taking place here. It's an extraordinary moment. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 9, and I'll read to you from the first verse to verse 13. It's in page, on page 1486 in the church Bibles, if you want to pick one of those up at the back. It says this, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it's written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did did to him whatever they pleased, as it's written of him. That last moment there where they have this interaction around the, the question of who Elijah is. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, obviously appears in this passage and There had been a prediction in the final book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, that Elijah would come to return the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers. And, of course, Jesus understands that to be his cousin, John the Baptist, whom we know was a preacher, announced the coming of Jesus, and ultimately was, was killed himself, was beheaded by King Herod. And so, really, it ends on a moment where they have not much understanding of what they've just seen, it seems. And yet, this is one of the most significant moments in the lives of Peter, James, and John. And I really believe it marks a significant moment for us also as we consider what's going on here. So let's pray, shall we? Father, it's our desire that we understand your ways better and that our hearts and minds be gripped by you. 
I pray for those who see only clouds, that you just blow them away. Let them see with clarity. I pray for those who are entering this year with anxieties or concerns or cares or uncertainties. Come and bring the peace of God. For those who are bounding ahead with ambitions and desires and uh, all kinds of plans and purposes, bring them back to a focus upon you. May we see the Lord Jesus Christ. May we feel what we're called to feel and do as we're called to do in response to everything that we understand this evening. Amen. Amen. As I said to you, this is a pivotal moment. There are many moments in your life that you will look back on over the span of years and think of as extremely pivotal, significant, and life-changing moments. Moments that uh, maybe you didn't understand the significance of the time, at the time, but with years and perspective, you understand these are the things These were the the key moments in my life. And I think about the choices of the places where you chose to live or the careers that you chose to do. Sometimes it feels that you stumble into them at the time. But with hindsight, you recognize that there were these turning points in your life. People that you met, perhaps a special person you met. And uh, decisions that you make as a result of these, these sort of threshold moments in your life. And sometimes the key things that happen to us are actually things that, that, that happen passively, the events that take place around us. It's tragedies that befall us. Or it's um, that there's kind of unexpected things like when a boss taps you on the shoulder and offers you, um, offers you a promotion or an advancement or an opportunity that you did not expect that came out of the blue. And you can think back across the span of your years and think there were certain significant things that have happened to me. Even if you're a young person, you can think of significant things that have happened to you up to now that have changed the course of your life to date. And certainly, when I think back, there are too many to recount. But I think about some of the ones in, that, that have been particularly significant to bring, bring me to this moment, I suppose. I think about when I was just 10 years of age and I felt uh, very clearly the call of God to be a pastor at that age. And it really determined, it determined what would happen afterwards. I didn't waver from that. And I recall it vividly. Uh, some of the places I was and the things I was thinking at the time um, as, as that really set me on a different direction. Before that, I was going to be an Olympic runner, if you were wondering. And um, I, st- I also remember, I remember the time I bought a ring, not for myself, but for, for C. Um, what, a, what a moment that is. And uh, I remember the time years later when we were driving through Waterloo on our way home from North London and... Um, the thought occurred to us, and we don't know to this day who said it first, but the thought occurred to us that there needed to be a church. And uh, how, you know, that was a pivotal moment. Suddenly the idea had legs. It began to grow, and, and there was energy and momentum with that, and people began to join us. And so grace came into existence. I remember um, a couple of years after that, sitting in my lounge, and my mom and dad sitting down with us and explaining to us the diagnosis that my dad had. What a, what, a, what a threshold moment that was for us as a family. And you can think back across these significant moments. And I'm saying this to you because here at this juncture, in the experience of these men, Peter, James, and John, this is the most, perhaps the most pivotal moment of their life today. Undoubtedly was, actually. And perhaps also, it stands as one of the great peaks of 
in their memories when they reflect back on it years later, we discover. Jesus, the reason why I think this is so significant, just a matter of days earlier, Jesus had taught his disciples what real discipleship means with the most extreme and demanding call. You look back at chapter 8 and verse 34. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And he, he there laid out the path to life and the path to what it means to be a follower of Christ. That it's the opposite to what you think if you try and grab hold and seize on to life and your desires as you want things to be. He says there's no space then for him. Whereas if you can die to yourself, if you can let go of the things which uh, hinder you from, from following Christ, then you can have him. And there's really that stark a choice. And of course, the person who sits in the middle between those two options and tries to have a bit of Jesus and a bit of the life that they want is the most miserable person in the world. And these disciples were left with this call. He just left it with them. And it tells us that it, it just sat with them for days. And I wonder what they were feeling in the course of those days. Some of them, there would have been a sense of excitement. Wow, this is, a, this is a moment to decide. This is a moment to think about what it means for the rest of my life. Do I follow Jesus or not? It's also a moment of agony. Because whenever there are difficult decisions left before you, I, I, I doubt that there's... Many of us who don't feel the agonizing uncertainty of whether I'm doing the right thing or not. And all of it led, we're told six days later, to this moment. A moment when they would have crossed the line, I think, mentally and emotionally. And the reason why I'm so certain that it was a very, very powerful moment in their experience is that Decades and decades later, when Peter is probably a relatively old man, he reflects back upon his ministry, reflects back upon the impact of his preaching, reflects back upon the influence that he's had upon thousands of other people as a result of the gospel that he's lived out and preached. And he says this, he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make all of this stuff up. It's very important that he, he understood that in his own heart as well as taught the new believers that. This is in his second letter to Peter. Because he knew that people were then suffering for the things that he was teaching. If it all been made up, what a, what a tragic waste of lives that would have been. But he says that these were not cleverly devised myths about this man called Jesus. He says rather, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he says, for when he, and this is speaking about Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. In other words, in Peter's mind, he, he can look back in old age and think, I know Whenever doubt afflicted him, I know I've done the right thing. I know I've given my life to the right cause. I was there. I looked at him. I saw the glory of God shining out of him. My life changed at that point. It was the most, one of the most significant moments of my life. That and, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. 
And the reason why I'm stressing to you what a threshold moment this is, is because I'm sure at the turn of a year especially that many of you are thinking about life. You're thinking about the future. It's an odd person indeed who doesn't cross into a new year and and not think about, about what's to come and the plans and desires that you have and the direction that you're taking. We all do that. We all think at this moment. And I think that as we look at this passage, it speaks to this, these questions and these desires. And my purpose is really uh, twofold. On the one hand, to agitate those of you who are settled. And on the other hand, to settle those who are agitated. What I mean is this, that sometimes you can be settled on the wrong path and the Lord Jesus would want to agitate you to rethink. And on the other hand, there are those of you who feel like your life is up in the air and the chips haven't fallen. Nothing's fallen to the ground as yet. And there's a sense in which when you grasp the priority and the centrality and the importance of the things that are taught through this passage, things will fall as they are meant to fall. And there'll be a settled peace that comes upon you. So I want to show you what I think this passage leads us to, what it means for us essentially, and really through the lens of just one verse in the story, which is that in which the Father's voice is heard through the breaking clouds. And it says in verse 7 that a, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen, listen to him. And I think that in that line, we discover the Father's priority and will for us in a number of ways. Let me show you what those are. The first is this, that it teaches us that the Father's desire for you is first and foremost that you believe in the Son. It is primarily a statement, a a truth claim. This is my beloved Son. A claim that you have to wrestle with that you have to make a decision about, and that ought to have ongoing, profound implications in your life if you've you've come to believe that it's true. It's a truth claim. Now, I want us to think about it through the lens of this question. What, What do you think the heart of authentic spirituality is? What is authentic spirituality? And it is not primarily an intellectual grasp of a particular philosophy or teaching or dogma. That's part of the Christian faith to understand correct teaching, absolutely, but it's not the central thing. It's not either a, a practice or a particular set of practices. And when you think about what an authentically spiritual person is, very often we think of a person who follows a particular routine in their days and weeks. And that's not it at all. And nor is it as a vague kind of aura. You know how you think about what a spiritual, when you imagine what a spiritual person looks like, you imagine someone with a serene glow who wears sort of Uh, wavy clothes, and drifts through life with this kind of untouchable aura. And of course, the Bible does not portray spirituality in that way. The answer to the question, what is a spiritual person in the Bible, is very simple. It's a person who is rightly, uh, rightly concerned with and related to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one who is connected with him through faith. And Therefore, when we look at this story and ask the question, what is this, this moment doing in the lives of these men? What is this actually about? What is it accomplishing in the lives of these men? What is the transfiguration doing to them? One of the answers, and probably the first answer we have to come to is this, that what it's doing is it's putting Jesus at the center of their universe or revealing him to be the center of all things would be a better way of putting it. 
And you can kind of see this happening almost symbolically in, as the story is unfolding. Jesus with these three disciples, they go up the mountain. But as they go up, it's like heaven comes down with the, the appearances of these men, of Moses and of Elijah, and then the voice of God. And in the meeting of heaven and earth, at the center of it all, the focus is upon Jesus. And you can picture it in your mind, can't you, that all things are pointing to this, this one man, Jesus, and the curtain is being pulled back and his glory is being unveiled. And it's also there in, in the, the way that his radiance shines out. The language of being transfigured, it means transformed or changed, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean here that Jesus' his, his person is being altered, that he's in some way changing. It's rather more that, some, that the curtain is being pulled back and something is being revealed about him that they couldn't see beforehand. In Matthew's gospel, it says that his face shone like the sun. In Mark's gospel, in, in this passage that we just read, it said that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And of course, what it's doing is it's, they're catching a glimpse with their physical eyes of his greatness and glory in spiritual realities, his purity, his unmatched purity, his dignity and worth, the fact that he is the only person on earth worthy of our worship, and of the fact that he has come to bring light to the world, that without him in the world there is just darkness, but with Christ there is light in the world. And all of this is, is there in this moment as it takes place, as it unfolds before them. And what, uh, the reason why I'm stressing this is because I want you to understand how this This brings all of the demands of Christ to this crescendo moment. Jesus has laid this challenge before these men. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. If you want to keep your life, you need to lose it. If 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 you try and hold on to your life, you will lose it. And then all of that demand, all of those pressing questions that they're wrestling with leads us to this moment when all of their questions and doubts and fears are answered in the revelation, the opening of their eyes, in the seeing of who Jesus is and the voice that comes down, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The Father, before anything else, wants us to believe upon Jesus. And that is a a powerful thought to sit with. I think for one reason, it helps us deal with some of our deepest existential questions and uncertainties in life. It helps us deal with the questions of what is my purpose? What, you know, I don't know if you're a reflective person, but very often at the turn of the year, it, it's an opportunity to, to think about wh- where you're going in life. And you may be asking the question, what am I meant to be doing? Who am I? What, what, what is my life about? And if you are a spiritual person, you'll also be thinking, well, what does it mean for me to grow spiritually? What does it mean for me to, to, to mature and develop and to be godlier? And what I'm trying to suggest to you is that, in a sense, in this, in this moment, in this story, what happens is that all of the questions are answered because they all converge upon the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our deepest questions converge upon him. As the father's voice says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Your purpose becomes much clearer when you know, and when you know Jesus. The sense of what it means to be a spiritual person becomes clearer when, he is, when you fix him in your mind and heart. And he is in the central place. 
I know that some of you may be thinking, well, look, it's easy for Peter, James, and John. You know, of course, they lived the whole of the rest of their lives out of this moment, didn't they? But it was easy for them because they saw him with their physical eyes. What about me? I haven't seen him in that way. How can I possibly make sort of life-changing decisions on the basis of, of what you're saying? And a couple of things I'd say to you. One is to do with the nature of faith, and the, the other is to, to do with the way the Holy Spirit works in your life. On the one hand, you know, for the believer, faith is, is the ability, God-given ability to believe what's written. And this story has the ring of authenticity to it. If you, one of the things that really just amazed me about it when you think about this is how, I don't know if you know this, but Mark's gospel, um, written by John Mark, who was a, a kind of a disciple and, and helper to the apostle Peter. So this is basically the apostle Peter's eyewitness testimony being recorded through this man Mark and his pen. And I find it wonderful. You see this in a number of places in this gospel how Peter is revealed to us again to be this kind of slightly, slightly um, I don't want to say stupid. I don't think he's a stupid man, but he certainly, certainly is, get, puts his mouth, foot in his mouth on numerous occasions. And here you see him, you know, how as this appearance takes place, he sees Moses, he sees Elijah. What does he do? It says, he blurts out, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It says, because he didn't know what to say, but they were terrified. You think, if you're Peter and you want to relay a memory upon which you've built your entire ministry, upon which you've said, look, this is, this is what makes my ministry authentic and true, are you going to include in there a little aside about how you made a complete and utter fool of yourself in that moment and said the stupidest thing? Of course you're not. But it, the reason he said it, the way it's really relayed through Mark, is, of course, this is what happened. This is just, this is just what happened. It's wonderfully, there's just this beautiful authenticity to it. But I want to add to that, it's not only the case that we, we simply read the words and believe it, but it's also that the Holy Spirit, you know, the New Testament talks about the ability to believe upon Jesus as spiritual sight. And of course, having a vision like this, which is rare to say the least, is not the only way people come to believe. The Holy Spirit opens your eyes in a spiritual sense. And you can think back on moments in your life when you saw with great clarity who Jesus is. And those memories and that reality can live with you and has weight for you. The Father wants you to believe upon his Son. Here's the second thing I want to say to you. And it's really a progression on this. But the Father, the Father wants you to love his Son. He wants you to love his Son. Think about what I'm saying through the lens of the emotions of what they must have been feeling that day. What do you think were the dominant emotions that, that were there present in that moment that lived with them? I think we can, we can think about what they were feeling. On the one hand, there would have been a measure of reverence and fear, wasn't there? But if I'm honest, I don't think that's the most important thing. Of course, there was some terror. Peter blurts stuff out because he's afraid, basically. But the, the reverence and the fear isn't what lived with him. As soon as, as, soon as the, everything died down and went back to normal, it was like they were just talking with their friend Jesus again. Or you might think, well, the, the, the real thing that they were experiencing was this holy transcendence, this worship, this adoration and awe. 
Of course, there is that sense of that happening in the moment. But again, as soon as things returned to normal, it was like, we're just with Jesus again. But I actually think that the dominant thing, the, the key thing that they were, that emotionally that they were experiencing, that would live with them from this moment onwards, was that the Father was impressing upon them a new and profound love for, for Christ. And the reason I say that, just I want you to no- notice how this theme of love for him just comes through and this relational dynamic comes through in, in a number of ways. The first is, of course, in the Father's words where he says that this is my beloved son. When the Father's voice came out of heaven, there are many ways he could have described Jesus. He could have used any number of titles. He could have used his names like Emmanuel. He could have used the titles that we read of in the prophet Isaiah that we're reading at Christmas, like Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But what he does instead is he describes him as the beloved, as his beloved son. It's the same as what happened on the Christ baptism. This is my beloved son. Why? I think it's partly because the father's own affection just pours out. But it's more than that. I think it's because, like any proud father, he wants those around the son to enjoy him as much as he does. I'm, as a dad, I, I, I take immense pleasure in my children. I enjoy them so much. I love them so much. But it actually is in, incredibly joyful to me to see other people enjoy them. You know, whenever we come to the evening service, Knox gets handed around from one person to another. And it's a wonderful thing to me to see the enjoyment. This is my son. And I think there's a sense in which when these men are being brought into this moment to see Jesus in this way, and the Father's voice comes down, what the Father wants is for them to love him the way he loves his son. It's what he wants for you as well. Another thing that I find interesting about this, which just sort of adds to this picture of it being that love is at the center of what's happening here, is the intimacy of this moment. It said that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He asked the question, why only these men? And it's not because they were more scholarly than the other disciples. It's not because they had better leadership gift than the other disciples. None of those things were necessarily true at all. I think it's for the simple reason that these were Jesus' closest friends. You ask, what's at the heart of friendship? The heart of friendship is intimacy, the sharing of oneself, the opening of your heart, the ability to show who you really are and unveil yourself to other people in a very real and authentic way. So what these men experienced in this moment was the closing of the distance. As any remaining confusion or questions or doubts about who Jesus is begin to melt away and they're moving closer to him in deeper friendship and knowledge and love and intimacy as as their Lord. I also think you can see it in another area, which is where what's happening with Moses and Elijah here. It's a very odd situation. No one really knows why these two men appeared. And I've got my own theories I'll mention in a moment. But I think what what is also striking about it is that when they appear, what does Mark say they're doing? It says there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. 
You know, they could have been doing any number of things. They could have been praying and worshiping. They could have been standing in serious solemnity. But what they're rather doing is they're just conversing with him. A number of the commentators just talk about how it just seems to, to show, to peel back a reality of what heavenly existence is, how these men just have this free and open relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, how they know him and love him. And I'm stressing all this to you, friends, because when you ask the question, what is it that the Lord, what is it the Father most desires in your own heart in this coming year? It's not just that you return to your faith in Jesus as the ground upon which you build your entire life, but it's more than that. What the Father desires is that you love his Son, that you grow in a deeper affection and devotion, even obsession, a fixated passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems to me that when you think about what true spirituality looks like in the Scriptures, it is raging, passionate love for God, isn't it? We tend to think of it as many other things, as purity, which is certainly a dimension of obedience. It's certainly a dimension of many, many things. But what it really is, is this, this love. Now, why is it that David, who wrote most of the Psalms, is praised by God as being the man, what is it, the man after my own heart, who'll do all my will? It's because of his affection for God. What is it... When you read later in, in, in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, what is it that Christ wants of his people in those letters to the churches in, in the book of Revelation? He wants their love. So what he says to the Ephesian church, he says, you've got so many things right, but this is the one thing you don't have. You've forgotten your first love. I think that the central living active thing that was placed in their hearts that day was not just the reverence and the fear and the adoration. It was this affectionate love for Jesus. The Father was showing them who he was so that they could love him more deeply and in a way that would would utterly grip them for the rest of their lives. And this is what Christ wants of you, friend. This is what he wants to do in your life. You think about Jesus' own words in the book of John. He says things like this in John 15. He says, he says, abide in me and I in you. The thing that Christ wants of you above all, in terms of you fostering and developing and growing in your relationship with him, the thing he wants above all is that you, you are intimate with him, that you have a, a real relationship, that you're not It's not the case that your faith in him is in some way hollow. That yes, you look like a Christian on the surface or that you have kind of the veneer of Christian culture but no real knowledge of God. Notice that that he has your heart. That you abide in him. That's what it says. Jesus also says in that same chapter in John 15, he says to his disciples, "Um, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. And what is it, in other words, what is it that, that Christ would do in you as you grow in depth of maturity in your Christian life? And the answer is that as 
as your knowledge of him grows, you discover the deeper realities of what friendship with Jesus means. That to grow in maturity in Christ is to be a, a friend of Christ. So the Father's desire, I think what's going on in this moment and what the Lord would want you to pursue above all things is this love for Jesus. Amen? Let me bring you to a last point. I think the Father also wants you to obey the Son. He wants you to obey the Son. He says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Now, I want to show you that I think this is actually the, the, kind of on, the ultimate consequence of what these kind of mountaintop experiences meant in the Bible. Think about it first through, through, okay, this is why I think these two men, Moses and Elijah, appear here. Because uniquely in the Old Testament, they're two men who had similar mountaintop experiences with God that meant that they affected enormous change in the world as a result of what happened to them. The first is with Moses. Moses encounters God on Mount Sinai. And we're told what happened there. It says that there was thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. All the people are camped at the bottom of the mountain and all this, this, this crazy sort of weather phenomenon happening at the top of the mountain with these trumpets. And then God beckons and summons Moses up. And then what happens? He doesn't just encounter God for the, for the sake of it, but what happens is he receives the Ten Commandments while he's up on Mount Sinai, and he then returns down to bring about massive change in the life of God's people through what he's seen and heard from God as a result of being upon the mountain. Same thing is with, happens with Elijah in a slightly different way. Elijah has an experience with God on Mount Horeb, a different place. And he was summoned by God up the mountain. And when he's there, it says, Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. But after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And Elijah has a similar encounter with God that utterly changes him. And then he's also, like Moses, sent down with a commission, not with a new law, but with a charge to set up a new king in Syria, a new king in Israel, so that God's people will be brought back to God. In other words, when God wants to bring about the transformation of his people, what he does is he selects these men, pulls them into intimacy with him, turns them around and charges them with this, this new calling to go out. And something similar is happening here with Peter, James, and John. They're brought up onto the mountain where they see this unforgettable sight. And the purpose isn't just that they have this experience that they can relish for the rest of their lives. The ultimate purpose is to bring themselves and then ultimately us into a place of consecrated obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're talking about obedience in this way, it, it can feel a little bit like a, a kind of a jarring note for us to end on. Partly because, you know, we've been talking about the love of God and believing in Jesus and all this wonderful stuff. And you think obedience. Isn't that legalism? It's also jarring just because we're conscious, aren't we, of our failings. 
We're conscious of the ways in which we, we deviate from what we know we're called to be and do. The Bible shows us that ultimately, when God is bringing about a revival of your heart, which is what would happen to them that day, He's bringing about the ability to see Jesus with new eyes. Which, God, we need, don't we? When you think about how easily we, we grow in apathy and coldness towards the Lord. When you think about how we wrestle with all kinds of sin issues in our lives. When you think about the urgency of what's needed at this moment, which is people who are sold out for God and know that they're called to him, know they're called to his purposes, who know why they're here on this earth and what it means to serve him. When you think about all these things, look, we're conscious, aren't we, that what's needed is this revival of the heart. And God wants to, to, to put in our, he wants Christ to be reestablished as the center of our lives. That's what it means to believe on him. Then he wants us to have this deep and passionate affection for him, to love him like the father loves him. But the consequence of those things, what, what ought to flow out of that is that ultimately God brings you into a place of surrender, of saying my life for him, of repenting of our sin, of putting it behind us and serving him passionately, wholeheartedly, willingly, devotedly. When you read the scriptures, it's clear that this is the expression of real faith. It says in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham obeyed. To believe in God is to then walk in obedience with him. It's also in the Bible the ultimate expression of love. Jesus said it very clearly in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You can recognize, in other words, a person who has been face to face with Jesus. You can recognize them by their holiness. You can recognize them by their longing to obey him, by their desire to put the flesh to death and to run hard in obedience to the Lord. Has the Lord done that kind of work in you? Is he working in you that longing, that desire? As I close, I just want to ask you then, what does God want of you this year? Faith, love, obedience. The faith is this, this absolute certainty that if Christ is at the center, my life can be built upon him. Jesus said it very clearly, emphatically, didn't he? He said, build your life upon my word. To love him, this raging, passionate, obsessive, desire to know him better and to be in intimate relationship with him and then ultimately then to obey him a renewed surrender a renewed longing to repent and I want to lead us in prayer now I want to lead us in prayer just along the lines of these three things that I've been wanting to underline for you why don't we just bow our heads? It may be the case that you, you may want to take a place on your knees if you feel like you need to have dealings with God right now. If so, I invite you to just do that right now.
But let's come to him. And let's ask that the Holy Spirit will bring about these things in our lives in this, these days and in this time to come. Father God, we want to come to you at the head of this year, at the start of this year, with fresh longing and desire that our lives would be centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, it's clear that in this most holy moment on the mountain when heaven opened up and the curtain was, was pulled back for a few moments what was being revealed is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of all things he's the reason that all creation is pointing to it's all about him Father, we pray that, Lord, even though we so easily confess faith with our mind and with our lips, Lord, it's so often the truth that we, we do not place you at the center. And we pray, Lord Jesus, help us to love and to believe on you in this kind of a way. Energize our hearts with renewed affection for you. Help us to love you, Lord. Call us into committed obedience to you. We repent of our sin, Lord. We cry out, forgive us for the ways that we have displeased you. Bring us to a place, Lord, where we can say, Lord, even if none of the other questions in life are clear, we know this is true that we live for you. And as we devote ourselves to you, Lord, I pray, may we find new purpose and energy in this coming year in our walk with you more than we've ever known. I pray for those who feel like their best days were behind them. May that not be true. May that kind of jaded perspective disappear. May we instead Remember our first love. I pray for those who aren't sure that they believe in you at all. Lord, I pray that they might have a glimpse, somewhat like Peter and James and John had a glimpse. With their spiritual eyes to know, Lord, your worthiness. We lay before you now our plans and purposes, our dreams and our ambitions. We lay before you our desires for this church. And say, Jesus, we want you to take your rightful place. We want you to be all in all. To come now, we pray. Holy Spirit, come and bring about this change and deep uh, renewal of spirit. In your precious name, Lord. Amen.